Public Research with Daniel Schwartz. Episode 3 with Brandeis University historian Jonathan Sarna. Jonathan Sarna is the Joseph H. and Bell R. Braun Professor of American Jewish History at Brandeis University. He's also the author or editor of more than 30 books. His book, American Judaism, A History, won the Everett Jewish Book of the Year Award in 2004. He's also author of several histories surrounding the Civil War, such as Lincoln and the Jews and When General Grant Expelled the Jews. In this episode, we discuss the past and future of American Jewish life, as well as the history and nature of anti-Semitism in America. When people think about the history of racism, anti-Semitism, different types of bigotry, I think there's this assumption that it's sort of linear, that it must have been worse in 1776 than it was in 1877. Is this true when it comes to anti-Semitism in America? Uh, It's certainly not linear. Um, Over and over again, Jews have been surprised by spiking anti-Semitism. They had expected that Things were getting better and better, and then they got worse. That happened in the late 1870s, um, uh, which is exactly the same time uh, that um, uh, with the end of Reconstruction, the Jim Crow legislation comes in, and at the same time, we see spiking anti-Semitism and uh, Jews kept out um, of Coney Island, of Saratoga, and of other hotels, and uh, a real sense that they are unwelcome in places where previously they had been welcome. Uh, after World War One. Uh, again, an era where there is a great deal of uh, tension and hatred, uh, Jews um, um, become uh, the victims of Henry Ford's anti-Semitism and indeed uh, the interwar years, whether it's Henry Ford or Father Coughlin or um, uh, quotas at colleges. Uh, and so on, um, uh, see a great deal of anti-Semitism. And similarly, I think Jews had seen a decline in anti-Semitism in the years following World War II. Americans didn't want to be like the people uh, we just won a war against. And many thought, I think, uh, a younger generation uh, felt that, uh, you know, um, anti-Semitism was a matter of history, like the old wars of the Protestants versus the Catholics. And um, that, I think, has made developments in the 21st century 
particularly surprising to, and disturbing for some. But against the background of American Jewish history, uh, what we see is um, uh, periods when anti-Semitism has risen. And it's important to remember that every one of those eras uh, has been a, a time when there's also been significant hatred, prejudice against other groups as well um, uh, in America. Jews in America, unlike in some other countries, are not the only victims um, uh, or the only outgroup. My understanding is the founders sort of had a curiosity for Judaism. If you look at the Yale University crest, for instance, there's Hebrew on it. So let me just ask in sort of a crass way, who, who was more anti-Semitic, Thomas Jefferson or Father Coughlin? You know, you can find uh, lots of different things in Thomas Jefferson. Um, on the one hand, he has Jewish friends, Jewish correspondents. He, um, uh, there's nothing racial about his anti-Semitism or his negative comments on Jews. Um, uh, and uh, uh, indeed, Jefferson was a hero to many Jews precisely because of his promotion of religious liberty. When he studied different religions, and remember he had very limited sources on Judaism, he felt that the morality of Christianity was of a higher nature than the morality of Judaism. But that didn't apparently impact on his relations with individual Jews, and he was quite willing and indeed eager to see Jews come to the University uh, of Virginia. And that's why Jews honored him. There's a big difference between the um, view of African-Americans that you find in Jefferson, uh, where indeed he did see them as uh, racially inferior and uh, and the view of Jews. Uh, Father Coughlin um, really um, uh, in the night by the by the time he's silenced, uh, Father Coughlin is in league with Goebbels and with Nazis. Um, and uh, not only is his anti-Semitism, both religious and uh, racial, uh, but um, uh, he is an apologist for uh, Kristallnacht, for uh, the attacks on Jews known as Kristallnacht throughout uh, Germany. Uh, you know, he argued Jews deserved it. And um, uh, I think that 
many of uh, the followers of Father Coughlin engaged in anti-Jewish violence. And uh, some of them we now know, a recent book showed, really uh, were engaged in anti-American activities. So there's no parallel with, um, uh, with Jefferson. Um, uh, who was a thinker way ahead of his time and um, truly a believer, as few were, that um, the multiplicity of religions, that religious liberty would be good for, um, uh, for religion. Uh, unlike in politics, when we say united, we stand divided, we fall. Jefferson believed that in religion, divided we stand, united we fall. If there's one religion, then if you don't like the state, you don't like the religion. If there are many religions, people will move one to the other. It's not associated with the state religion. Uh, will thrive, as indeed American history has shown America, uh, even though there's been a decline, America is still the most religious first world country. So um, uh, Jefferson was much more remarkable, much more advanced, and um, I think uh, much uh, uh, less anti-Semitic and uh, more... Um, uh, willing to learn. One of the earliest figures of prominence who's Jewish in America is Judah P. Benjamin, who's a Louisiana senator and takes up a cabinet role in the Confederacy during the Civil War. Was he a token for the South to sort of prove their tolerance, or was he generally accepted despite being Jewish? I wouldn't look at it that way. Look, when you're a white minority, you embrace every pale face you can. Jews benefited in the South, especially in South Carolina, Louisiana, because they were part of the white minority. Whites knew that they... Uh, and needed them and embraced them as long as they supported the system. Uh, Judah Benjamin was not at all unique. Uh, there are numerous other uh, Jews who rose up uh, in the Confederacy. Uh, there's a man named Myers, Fort Myers in Florida is named for him, who was very um, high up in the uh, Confederacy, and, um, and many political figures in Louisiana um, uh, were partly Jewish, had Jewish blood, and so on. Uh, the truth is that um, uh, the, the lines in much of the South were black-white uh, race, and Jews uh, as long as they conformed, were accepted as white. Judah Benjamin was a genius, really. And uh, what, um, I mean, just look at how uh, 
he started again from nothing in England and how rapidly he rose up to become uh, uh, an important um, barrister there. Um, uh, obviously, one may be appalled by his views on um, slavery, uh, but uh, I think um, that although he's no question that he suffered from anti-Semitism, uh, but I think that Benjamin uh, was accepted uh, really on the basis of his merit. Uh, and uh, we now know that he was um, a very uh, a, a close uh, to um, the leaders of the of the Confederacy. So um, uh, and and you know clever enough that uh, almost uniquely he was able to escape uh, after the fall of Appomattox when so many of the others uh, were not. I don't want to generalize um, because I think that would be wrong. But given how many prominent anti-Semites in America have been Catholic, whether it's Father Coughlin or today, if you look at somebody like Nick Fuentes, generally, who has been more anti-Semitic in America, Protestants or Catholics, could you say? Well, I mean, look, uh, since Vatican II, um, uh, the official church uh, has been very close to Jews. Uh, look at the current pope. Um, um, and in many ways, the Catholic Church is an example of how institutions can change much more than Jews expected them to. Uh, and it's really a remarkable story. Almost every Catholic college in America today has Jewish studies and often hires Jews, not uh, converts, but uh, uh, Jews to uh, occupy positions. Um, I, I, I think um, within the Black Hebrew, Black Israelite community, there are some, not all, but there are some strands there which are deeply anti-Semitic, so much so that they argue that Jews are not really Jews and uh, uh, that um, uh, Jews have been replaced and so on. Uh, and uh, Kanye West seems to uh, reflect that. Um, you know, the, the right-wing Catholic community, again, is complicated. Anyone who reads First Things can see great respect in First Things for especially Orthodox Jews, and there are many parallels, uh, even in, in terms of respect for law and tradition. Uh, but uh, we are certainly seeing and have long known uh, that there are also right-wing uh, uh, Catholics who have a kind of traditional 
pre-Vatican II anti-Semitic uh, stance, and uh, we, we've seen some of that uh, as well. But when you compare um, leading Catholics today with the Catholic Church pre-Vatican II, I think most people right. are impressed by the differences, um, not the similarities. Right. Right. And current Pope is clearly trying to um, limit the power of uh, older right-wing um, uh, Catholics in, 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 in various places. Right, right. Um, and feel free to just decline to answer this because uh, we uh, don't want to, you know, sometimes it's not worthy to give attention to these people. But I wonder, as a real historian of Jewish history, what you make of the fact that so many uh, sort of obsessive anti-Semites like to... Uh, almost cast themselves as you know the, the there's they sort of present themselves as i'm i'm giving you the true history of the jews you i mentioned that this catholic guy uh, e michael jones uh do you have any thoughts on that variety or you can decline if you no, want no i mean i think that one of the saddest developments of really uh, the last few decades has been a kind of relativism. I have my truth, you have your truth, that uh, uh, everybody's entitled to their own facts. Um, and, uh, you know, once that happens, uh, then indeed it's easy to substitute uh, uh, you know, one set of facts for another, and unwittingly, I think even the 1619 project uh, has encouraged that sense. Oh, uh, history is not what you imagine, uh, rather than complicating history and saying, as they should have said, you know, you talked about freedom and there was slavery, it tried to replace one narrative, a, a, an uplifting narrative of freedom, with another narrative of slavery. And that encouraged other people, I think, to say, oh, um, I got you know, a new narrative, and mine is just as good, if not better than yours, and... Uh, 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 you should accept it. Um, once upon a time, uh, you know, people uh, used footnotes and um, uh, there was a sense, oh, this was intention with that and uh, this was the majority view, this was the minority view and paradoxically, people believe both this and that. Uh, that, of course, is a more accurate way of viewing the past. And it's tragic that both on the left and on the right, um, the battleground over history 
has meant um, that um, rather than research, history has become subject uh, to polemics. As a historian of Jewish American history, I think it's pr it's probably a, just a fact of life that you have to pay attention to the history of anti-Semitism as well. I'm curious how much of it have you consumed something like the Spotlight, which was an anti-Semitic uh, newspaper for many decades. Have you read that? How much of it have you consumed? I mean, I happen to teach the course at Brandeis University on American anti-Semitism, and so I've tried to keep myself informed on the subject. But it's um, important, and I think you're suggesting that, important to uh, remember that there is a vast amount of Jewish creativity and accomplishment uh, that is completely obscured if all you do is focus on anti-Semitism. Right. That's not only true in America, it's true worldwide. If all we focus on is the Holocaust, then you miss all of that uh, Jewish creativity. And um, again, one needs a balance. Yes, uh, Jews were victims. But at the same time, they were um, uh, people who had a great civilization. And uh, I think in America, too, have um, uh, produced remarkable uh, work, scholarship, thought, uh, religion, science, and so on. And that is um, uh, important not to lose sight of. Uh, when one talks about American Jewry, um, and it's easy to lose sight of it if all you do is focus on anti-Semitism. There's a lot more to American Jewish history than just the history of, uh, of Jew hatred. Right. On a more positive note, are you more of a Bob Dylan guy or more of a Leonard Cohen guy, speaking of Jewish uh, singer-songwriters? Um, uh, uh, look, uh, uh, Bob uh, uh, Dylan did some uh, very uh, remark. I uh, did a very remarkable piece on anti-Semitism. It's sad that um, it's not better known. Leonard Cohen was a much more knowledgeable Jew, really steeped in a Jewish spirit. And I think anybody uh, who reads the new book on Leonard Cohen, um, Friedman's book on Leonard Cohen in the Yom Kippur War, will appreciate that um, uh, Leonard Cohen people don't realize that he was a scion of one of the leading Jewish families of Canada um, and, and, and um, you know, was associated with a synagogue. Uh, so they're not quite parallel. Each made a contribution um, 
in his own way. Uh, but I think that Leonard Cohen, as far as I know, and I don't want to pretend to be more knowledgeable this realm than I am, but my sense is that Leonard Cohen was more steeped in the Jewish experience um, uh, than uh, Dylan. Given your special perspective on the issue for so many years, would you agree with me that anti-Semitism in America is much much worse today than it was, say, in 2004? No question. By any measure, uh, whether you look at uh, the kinds of anti-Semitic incidents that the Anti-Defamation League counts, you see that rise. But what I think is even more disturbing is the legitimation of anti-Jewish rhetoric, um, so much so that it becomes normative and acceptable. We've seen people in Congress make outrageous comments. Um, we we see it uh, in mass culture. Um, uh, the the anti-Semites have far more followers than there are Jews in the world. Um, and uh, year by year, one has seen these incidents. Um, I see more and more students who report that they personally have experienced anti-Semitism. Uh, that was certainly not true um, uh, uh, two decades ago. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, uh, anyone who visits a synagogue is aware of, uh, security, deep security. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's an Orthodox synagogue, a reform, a conservative, a Chabad, they all understand that Jews are under threat and immense amounts of money are being spent on security. Um, it used to be uh, that Jews would see this in Europe and would be amazed. In my synagogue in America, they would say, we don't have any security at all. Uh, but of course, since Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, um, uh, every synagogue understands uh, that um, it has no option uh, but to uh, have security. So conditions for Jews uh, have declined substantially in the 21st century, much more than anybody expected. And the belief of some in the 1990s that Jews have become white folks in America, that anti-Semitism had vanished. It was, uh, there was a book that appeared in the end of the 90s, literally with the title, The End of American Anti-Semitism. And today, of course, um, uh, it's almost unimaginable uh, that someone thought that was um, 
uh, that was the case. So tragically, really, uh, conditions have gotten uh, worse and not better. And I think uh, that is a matter of very deep concern because it never ends with Jews. Uh, uh, in other words, uh, uh, you you may see that the hatred focuses on the experience of Jews, but then you realize, oh, and Asians are also experiencing it. And uh, there are deep anti-Black feelings. And what's really going on is a society that is uh, beginning to come apart. And uh, in that respect, I think anti-Semitism is the canary in the mine uh, field, uh, the, um, in the coal mine, um, uh, telling us that there are very great problems uh, in American society that we, we um, uh, dare not overlook. You're an eminent historian. You've gone through Civil War archives to write your books. I'm curious, in teaching and writing about anti-Semitism today, how much do you subject yourself to the online forms of it, whether it be Twitter or 4chan, stuff like that? No, I don't actually uh, 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 do that. I'm a historian. I do read um, articles, reports about uh, what's on contemporary uh, media, but I I don't, you know, unless directed, I don't go there um, myself. Uh, I would say that when I personally was targeted and when my university, um, Jewish students at my university were targeted, then I did um, spend some time, and it's very uh, deeply frightening to uh, see what's going on there. And you are perfectly right, and I'm glad you provide an opportunity to make the point that the digital revolution has had an enormous impact on the rise of anti-Semitism because before the digital revolution, yes, uh, there were all sorts of pockets of anti-Semitism and of extremism, but they weren't easily able to communicate with one another. Uh, they had to use the mail, it could be, be uh, tracked. Um, they couldn't coordinate, um, uh, they couldn't, operate the way they do so easily now, uh, thanks to the digital revolution. And uh, the digital revolution, of course, uh, has enormous benefits in many ways, but has been as well a boon to extremists and to small groups that can now join with one another and of course, we saw that on January 6th, where extremists from lots of different places converged on Washington. That would have been impossible 
uh, prior to the communications revolution that uh, digitization made possible. Uh, it's good to follow it, but it requires people with much greater expertise to follow it than I have, but maybe I have certain perspective uh, that they don't have yet. Yeah, sorry. I'm just curious randomly, have you subjected yourself to listening to Nick Fuentes, for instance? You know, I know, of course, who he is, and uh, I've read, uh, I haven't listened, but I've certainly read uh, articles that describe uh, his his views. Uh, there have certainly often been people um, uh, with, uh, extremists in America. He's not uh, the first, and uh, you know, if you say the earth is flat, people pay attention to you. If you say the the world is round, uh, they're not so impressed. But um, what was truly disturbing was to see someone like that having dinner with the former president of the United States. In other words, it used to be that folks like that were shunned by respectable individuals. And we looked to our political figures to tamp down uh, extremists and hate mongers. And what I think uh, is disturbing today is that that is not going on. And both on the right and on the left, uh, we, we see a certain uh, apology for uh, hate mongers, um, uh, you know, whether it's Marjorie Tyler Greene being um, given new responsibilities or Omar um, uh, on the left. Um, um, a, a congresswoman uh, uh, being supported by those on the left. Um, I think it would be better if uh, uh, everyone agreed that extremists and those who uh, promote hatred are marginalized um, uh, from uh, our, our culture uh, rather than finding ways uh, to embrace them. It seems to me like the far right in recent years has chosen, perhaps for demographic reasons, to emphasize anti-Semitism more than racism. They're still racist, but as far as emphasis, I mean. Do you think this is sort of part of a, a, a strategy of, of, of using it as a way to build a multicultural sort of far right today? Or what are your thoughts on that generally? You know, it's what I said earlier. I think that um, in our day, anti-Semitic um, rhetoric has been legitimated uh, in ways that... Um, um, uh, you know, it hadn't been 
um, uh, before, and um, uh, the the um, uh, and indeed there are all sorts of people in America today uh, who seem to be uh, attracted to. Uh, uh, you know, anti-Semitism, believing, I think, quite wrongly that if they go after the Jews, they won't go after us. Um, ra uh, 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 you know, rather than um, uh, realizing that, that we all share a, a kind of common culture, and if it's coarsened, it's coarsened for everybody. Um, but I, I do think that um, many things that once would not have been uttered by respectable people, uh, especially in the wake of World War II, uh, now are. And uh, we saw that um, with various dog whistles on the right um, uh, in the last administration. And we saw that uh, even um, uh, with um, Saturday Night Live, dog whistles to people who think Jews control Hollywood and uh, ideas that really have their roots in the protocols of the elders of Zion of Jewish control uh, that uh, one can now hear and see in respectable places. And I hope um, that you see that I'm I'm really attacking both the extreme right and the extreme left because both of them uh, engage in anti-Semitism. Sadly, if one calls out one side, people, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 say, "How come uh, you're? What about you're not talking about anti-Semitism here and there?" Uh, you know, the right doesn't see it on the left. The left doesn't see it on the right. Um, but um, um, in fact, uh, we're seeing it from both sides. That is one of the features that makes anti-Semitism a little distinctive in America. You've got right-wing anti-Semitism, left-wing anti-Semitism, Islamist anti-Semitism. Uh, that's a little different um, than, say, racism. Uh, but um, uh, nevertheless, I think Jews are contending with that. And um, uh, while it's difficult to say whether uh, uh, what you're seeing in Brooklyn, where it tends to be people on the left uh, and African-Americans, or uh, whether you're confronting right-wing extremists, which is worse, uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, uh, we're, we're seeing attacks upon Jews from various directions uh, in a way that would not have been the case um, uh, and, and would not even have been predicted uh, a generation ago. I was curious if Gallup came to you and said, we have $30 million and we want to do a poll on anti-Semitism. 
what questions would you ask? Would you ask a proxy question uh, to get at underlying beliefs, or, or what would be your strategy? I, as a historian, I, I like to learn from past wisdom. Both um, Gallup and also the ADL has a lot of wisdom on that subject, on questions that they have asked as proxies, some of which um, I think they later felt uh, were, were not good questions, but I, I wouldn't start as if no one had ever thought of that problem. Right. No, of course. Right. I would, and the advantage of looking at earlier questions is it allows a certain comparability over time. If I'm right that there are ideas today that you didn't have before, um, uh, you want to be asking that. Uh, there have been in the last year, I think, three studies that have crossed my desk, all of which suggest that Gen Z knows less about the Holocaust and is somewhat less believing of the Holocaust than their predecessors. And that's understandable. There are fewer and fewer survivors. Uh, earlier generations grew up meeting them. Uh, now that's harder. And it seems to me that there may well be a relationship um, there. Uh, we've seen just uh, recently uh, in respectable journals, oh, Jews don't have a monopoly on, uh, uh, on persecution. Uh, we don't want to hear more about uh, Jewish persecution. That's all part of the same, uh, I, I think, um, a, a, a kind of trope that, that the Shoah doesn't have the impact on American society in 2023 uh, that it had, let's say, uh, in 1973. Uh, and um, uh, I think your questions ought to ask that and see if there is a relationship uh, there. We've invested a lot, and there are a bunch of states that mandate the teaching of the Holocaust, but it's not clear to me um, uh, what impact it's had. And... and um, uh, you know, I, I have simply been impressed at uh, the uniformity of results that as you go generation by generation, uh, the younger uh, folks uh, have more and more doubts and are less and less interested in uh, hearing about uh, the Holocaust, which suggests that uh, the impact uh, is lessened in the 1960s, there were things you didn't say because uh, we just fought a war against them. And, uh, you know, you, everywhere you had soldiers who said, oh, that's just what the Nazis said. You must be un-American. Right. Uh, today, uh, um, that doesn't seem to be the case. If you look at anti-Semites online today, you see a 
reoccurring emphasis on this concept that Jews are using mass immigration as some kind of uh, nefarious uh, plot. Do you think Jews are going to be sort of the whipping boy over people's fears about changing demographics? Uh, I mean, look, it is certainly true that one of the longest traditions going well back into the 19th century uh, that was that American Jewish leaders uh, supported a pre-immigration and indeed viewed America, part of America's greatness, as give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. That poem uh, was by Emma Lazarus, and uh, she was deeply influenced by Eastern Europe, and I think most Jews realize that uh, had America not admitted the Jews that it did at the turn of the century, um, uh, the Jewish community would be much, much smaller today than it in fact is. Those Jews would have been murdered, and Jewish civilization would be much weaker. This fear that America is changing by immigration is the oldest fear in the American playbook. In the Alien and Sedition Acts, in the days of, of John Adams, you had the same idea, oh, all these Germans are changing America. Um, we have, I think, largely benefited from these changes. I don't apologize, I think, um, uh, optimistically that we've um, benefited from immigration much more than we've suffered. Think uh, Google and Russian Jewish immigration and its vast impact on high tech. Um, so, um, yes, I think there are ignorant people who will um, blame Jews, but those people knew that Jews were responsible even before it happened, because Jews are always in charge and responsible from their perspective. Um, now, there are Jews who I think don't know that history of, of, of immigration and, and support for immigration. It may also be that uh, we confuse support uh, for immigration with uh, uh, a sense that our borders shouldn't be controlled. Those are very different issues. Um, uh, but um, uh, but I do think uh, that the, there is a very long history of nativist anti-Semitism in America. Um, long before 1965, the nativists who wanted no immigrants were um, often uh, people who wanted no Jews. They felt Jews were the agents of change. Um, uh, and you can uh, see uh, even Harry Truman railing against uh, people who wouldn't admit uh, Holocaust refugees into America uh, because of fear uh, that it would change the country. 
um, history has time and again proved those folks wrong. And, um, uh, you know, I think Jews can take great pride in their support of immigration. And uh, I, I think uh, that we are continuing uh, to benefit from uh, uh, many of the newcomers who have come uh, to America's uh, shores and uh, the fear that America will cease to be white is uh, parallel to earlier fears. America uh, will cease to be Protestant. America will cease to be Christian uh, and so on. Um, I have more faith in uh, our ability to transform the children of immigrants into good Americans. And I'd much rather invest in teaching the American way to newcomers uh, than in uh, spending money uh, uh, to uh, keep um, uh, the tired, the poor, those who are eager to work hard and raise themselves up and live in a free country. Uh, why should we spend money to keep them out? Those are the kinds of people we want to bring in and historically um, every American is uh, a descendant from uh, uh, from immigrants, except uh, maybe Native American uh, Indians. So, um, I've heard people say before the joke that the reading about the Civil War is can be sort of addictive. There's something special about the period, the technology, the railroad, the telegraph. Were you a big Civil War uh, buff before you started to write about the period? Mm, I I think any American historian has learned to confront um, the Civil War. And one of the big themes in American history, um, really over the last half century, has been um, at the central importance of the Civil War and and what happened afterward, almost as if the Civil War was a, a second American Revolution. Um, I'm a 19th century historian at heart. My doctor was on a 19th century figure and a lot of um, my uh, scholarship has focused on the 19th century even though yes i've i've written from the 17th to the 21st but still anyone who works on the 19th century has to um, look at at the civil war uh, but I really only began focusing on the Civil War when it became clear that it was going to be the anniversary of the Civil War. Uh, naturally, there were questions about Jews in the Civil War. And uh, initially, 
uh, my then graduate student now in his own right, a very distinguished scholar, um, uh, Adam Mendelssohn and I thought, let's bring together the best scholarship on Jews in the Civil War uh, so that it'll be there for people. And that actually proved very successful. Um, and, uh, you know, then there was a, a new series of books, short, smart books in Jewish life. And I agreed to write on General Grant and that got a lot of attention. And on the basis of that, um, and Miss Benjamin Chappelle invited me to work with him on Lincoln. Um, but so the Civil War is a kind of period in my uh, scholarship. After I did my third Civil War book, I said, that's it. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Adam Mendelssohn has gone on and uh, just did a book on the Union soldiers, working on a book on the Confederacy. So I think that he's continuing that work. And it turned out that um, uh, there are very interesting things to say. In 2015, you wrote Lincoln and the Jews. What did you discover about that relationship? I think, and I tried to do this in other work, there's a kind of long history of keeping Jewish history in one silo and general history in another silo. Lots of people who went to Jewish day school studied a Jewish history with Jewish studies, Amer American or world history, otherwise, as if the two had nothing whatsoever to do with one another. Indeed, there was probably a whole generation that grew up learning about Herod the Great, and then in their Jewish class, Hordus Harasha, the wicked, and they didn't know it was the same person. And wouldn't it have been a much better education <coughs> had they learned, oh, in this way he was wonderful, in this way terrible, let's learn about complexity, but they never did. So in my work, I have tried to look at the intersection of American and Jewish history. Most people knew a lot about Lincoln, but certainly didn't know anything about Lincoln and the Jews. And I think we're pretty surprised to learn that one could write a whole biography of Abraham Lincoln, 300 pages through Jewish eyes looking at his interactions with Jews, and that in many ways, um, by doing that, one could see how the growing number of Jews in America impacted upon people, including upon Lincoln, and how they responded. In Lincoln's case, he made Jewish friends as uh, they became a part of his world, especially uh, in Illinois. And, um, you know, that turned out, I think, to be very important. Why wasn't 
Abraham Lincoln an anti-Semite, like many were at the time, including his predecessor, uh, Buchanan, and his successor, Andrew Johnson. And the answer turned out to be uh, that he knew Jews. He didn't uh, believe a lot of the stereotype because he said, how can you say that? Look at my friends. Um, uh, and so on. And um, uh, then it turned out that there were particular episodes where looking at Lincoln through Jewish eyes really illuminated moments in his presidency or just before both his election and um, uh, the whole matter of the chaplaincy and General Grant's order expelling Jews, which he overturned, and on and on, all the way uh, until his assassination. So by looking at Lincoln through Jewish eyes, we illuminated Lincoln, but also added an interesting chapter to American Jewish history. And uh, I think it underscores uh, my sense that to do American Jewish history, you have to know American history, you have to know Jewish history, and of course, uh, American Jewish history as the link between them. Uh, so methodologically, uh, it's justified kind of looking uh, at um, American Jewish history through the method that that I have adopted uh, through much of my career. When Lincoln was born, there were only 3,000 Jews in America. By the time of his assassination, there were 150,000. Well, I found it interesting in a talk you gave at the National Archive. You mentioned that even with this, such a small Jewish population, Lincoln was still receiving letters uh, when he was president saying the Jews are controlling the country. Really? That's really amazing. Because these stereotypes, of course, they long predate America. Many Americans in that period were immigrants uh, and they brought with them all sorts of stereotypes. And of course, we now think of Shakespeare you can have anti-Semitism uh, really without Jews. And, um, uh, you know, people who talk about Jews but know nothing about them, uh, Jewish space lasers in their day. Um, so I, I think that um, uh, it is quite important, and that's why I underscored the very passage you read, to realize what a difference it made in America that there were 3,000, meaning almost invisible and highly concentrated in a few cities, Jews, in uh, 1820, uh, and then, uh, you know, just uh, 40 years later, there were 150,000, and it keeps going. Uh, one might point out there were 3,000 in 1820. There were almost 3 million in 1920. Uh, so 
that's a very important transformation and it 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 moves Jews from invisibility uh, to to really visibility um uh, and um I I think many people uh, don't appreciate what a huge change took place. Um, it's not unique, I think, um, uh, in the 1960s, it was very difficult to find a Muslim in America, and look how many there are today. Um, and similarly, America is adapting. Um, America has had even in their day, great immigration uh, of non-Christians, often non-whites. And um, for some, this generates great anxiety, uh, white genocide. And for others, um, it suggests um, uh, uh, simply adaptation. And, oh, uh, there are these new people I can get to know and learn from. And Lincoln was certainly in the second category. Your other book surrounding the Civil War, When General Grant Expelled the Jews, very interesting. I want you to sort of explain what the book is about, but also I'm very curious about Grant. This is so cinematic. Grant's father and his well, role in the story. I mean, basically, um, and, and and this was very important, not only in 1862, but when Grant ran for president, it turned out that this was a big issue. So here was a case of a whole episode that really had been forgotten. In 18, very end of 1862, Ulysses S. Grant, not yet, a general of the entire uh, army, but a very significant area, is controlled by Grant, the whole Tennessee um, uh, army. And uh, Grant, who is deeply worried about smuggling, expels Jews from his war zone. He issues General Orders Number 11, uh, which uh, expels Jews, all Jews, not just smugglers, but all Jews from the area under his uh, control. Uh, that's the most anti-Semitic incident in all of American uh, history. And um, uh, had the order not been revoked by Abraham Lincoln as soon as he heard of it, the whole history of America would have been different. And we'd look at it, oh, just one other country uh, where Jews can be expelled and have to leave and so on. Um, so um, I was very interested in how this happened, what happened. I guess I was also interested in why more Jews hadn't been expelled. In other words, we had the order but we didn't have too many Jews who actually reported that they had to get up and leave. Uh, there were some, but 
Memphis had a big Jewish community and you didn't have it there. So it was of great interest to me. And um, as one began researching, uh, one realized and learned that not only was Ulysses S. Grant um, deeply concerned about smuggling, but in the Civil War, a lot of people used the word Jew as almost a synonym for smuggling. All smugglers were Jews, whether they were Jewish or not. Um, and just like, uh, I don't know, uh, people use the word gypsy for all sorts of gypsy cab doesn't today mean it's an ugly term, but doesn't necessarily mean someone who is um, literally one of the Roma people. And so it was in the Civil War. Now, it then turned out that Ulysses S. Grant's own father had cooked up a deal with the Macs in Cincinnati, who were clothiers and clothing manufacturers. They, of course, needed cotton. Um, and uh, uh, Ulysses S. Grant's father thought, well, I, I can use my son and uh, I'll be able to get cotton from the south to the north and they'll give me a big percentage of the profits, which were enormous. Uh, it didn't work out that way. Ulysses figured out that his own father, uh, he felt, had been tricked by Jews. There's no evidence it was tricked, but his own father was in cahoots with Jews to smuggle cotton. And uh, in a sense, instead of expelling his father, he expelled the Jews. It, in other words, reinforced all of his stereotypes about Jews and their connection to smuggling. Uh, he believed if you would stop smuggling, the South, uh, the, the South's economy uh, would collapse. I mean, to continue the story, um, uh, eventually um, uh, one of the Jews who actually um, was expelled um, makes his way to Washington and um, uh, goes in to see Abraham Lincoln Abraham Lincoln, this too was a puzzle to me uh, until I realized that because of a battle, the telegraph lines had been cut. So Abraham Lincoln knew nothing about this order. No copy of the order had reached Washington. And when he saw the order, uh, he instantly uh, overturns it. And we, we have actually the uh, telegram from General Grant saying that by order of the president, uh, my order is superseded and overturned. But many aspects of the story were important. And then when Grant ran for president, well, there was a question, would a man who issued that kind of order be fit to be president of the United States? Um, and, you know, it turned out that Ulysses S. Grant really spent the rest of his life trying to prove 
that he was not prejudiced, uh, that um, uh, that that order didn't reflect who he really was. And um, uh, in order to do that time and again, uh, as president and even after he was president, he um, went to bat for Jews. I uh, appointed Jews, he protested oppression of Jews, and so on. And amazingly, uh, this man who had been condemned as a Haman uh, in 1862, as someone who uh, you know, wanted to destroy the Jews like Haman in the Book of Esther, by the time he dies, uh, the Jewish community views him uh, really uh, as uh, a hero, as someone who had been a true penitent, not just in his words, but in his deeds, uh, and someone who they saw as a friend. And that, to my mind, uh, really uh, is a great American story. There aren't many parallels where you see a great figure who really does that kind of 180 degree turn, admits a mistake. Um, you know, we don't have it from the Tsar Nicholas or uh, from uh, King Ferdinand in, in Spain, but we do have it from Ulysses S. Grant, who apologized and proved by his actions that it, it wasn't him. And so, that's the story. And, 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 and Lincoln has sort of remarkable words when he overturns it, right? Yeah, um, I, I wish Spielberg had uh, uh, used those words in his great movie on, on Lincoln. Uh, he, he doesn't like to see a, a whole group condemned on account of a few sinners. And that, in a nutshell, is the essence of prejudice that Lincoln has identified when we judge an entire group uh, by its worst members, um, by, by the action of, of its worst members. And Lincoln, uh, in that moment, really illustrated that this was not something uh, that he was prepared to see, even in wartime, um, and overturned the order. If you had to come up with the Mount Rushmore of American Jews, you know, like a gun to your head, you know, who, who would be on it? Would it be like Rabbi Wise, Larry David? <laughs> who, who Larry David? Um, look, I, I, I don't, I, I think I am impressed by the two great religious builders of the 19th century, Isaac Mayer Wise and Isaac Leeser. And um, there's no doubt, um, not only that they had a great impact, but the amount of energy they expended to transform um, Amer the American Jewish community, which was growing very rapidly in their lifetime. And I'm particularly impressed at how they harnessed new technology 
whether it's the railroad or the, the greatly improved printing presses, uh, really to strengthen American Jewish life. So in the 19th century, they are very uh, great figures. Um, you know, as we move into the 20th century, there are different sets of, uh, of, of figures who um, uh, do very uh, remarkable things. I mean, in the post-World War II era, uh, one cannot but be deeply impressed with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, with um, uh, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who uh, comes to America as a refugee, really, and people thought, oh, these old European rabbis, um, uh, you know, they'll at least be able to uh, uh, live in America. They'll uh, get a decent funeral. And uh, this today, uh, you can't go to any city without seeing Chabad. And, and that's very remarkable. And uh, we, we have not fully appreciated uh, all that they um that they have done um uh, obviously stephen wise um uh, earlier figure uh, in the first half of the ninth of the 20th century henrietta zold uh looking at women and organizing uh, the largest zionist organization uh in the world at that at that time and really although Israelis don't know it, you can actually see the impact of Henrietta Zold to this day. The health sector in Israel is the only sector where Jews and Arabs work side by side. And that has everything to do with Henrietta Zold and Hadassah. So um, there are many, uh, it seems to me, um, uh, great figures. I, I I don't know, um, uh, you know, how one would decide who belongs on uh, Mount Sinai, but um, uh, I do think American Jewry has been fortunate um, uh, in in some of the leaders uh, that it has uh, that it has had and. Part of the great story of American Jewish history is how under freedom, without the kind of persecutions and restrictive legislation of Europe, what Jews were able to accomplish. I'm not saying that America has had zero anti-Semitism. That's ridiculous. And we see it in our own day. But when we see it in our own day, we also see the government uh, trying to, uh, the government condemning it, stamping it out. We now even have an ambassador um, who fights anti-Semitism. Uh, that certainly was not the case in Russia, uh, where Jews knew that the government was their enemy. So, um, you know, I think um, uh, that uh, American Jewish history has uh, much uh, to teach not only American Jews, but Americans generally, 
and much to teach uh, in terms of world Jewish history. I'm curious, what history films have moved you the most? Have great films, uh, and you, you know, mentioned them, uh, whether it's Exodus and the impact of Exodus today, I know it's much criticized, but the impact, it shaped a generation and you still, there are things in Exodus that a lot of Americans know, and they know it from Exodus, uh, a lie, the story, which turns out not to be true, that the king of Denmark uh, put on a um, uh, a yellow star um, in order to protest Nazi rule. He, he did try and save Jews in Denmark, no question about it, but I uh, didn't actually put on a star, but Exodus said he did, and that story is widely known. Um, and uh, the image of uh, the state of Israel uh, was very much shaped by Exodus. Um, uh, Schindler's List was similarly a remarkable film in reminding a later generation of the horrors of, of the Holocaust, although... I think it's too easy to focus on a small number of heroes. Um, disproportionate attention paid, uh, whereas the real story, tragically, is the story of people's inhumanity and sometimes the story of our neighbors actually um, uh, went to attack uh, their own neighbors uh, uh, because they were Jewish and because it was suddenly allowed. So, uh, but um, I'm nevertheless, for non-Jewish Americans, Schindler's List uh, is a, an entree uh, to the Holocaust. Um, I'm not a, a big as I said, movie person either. I probably uh, am not the best person to right. talk about that. Yeah. R random, random question. I just was reading a book about Leonard Cohen during the Yom Kippur War by Maddie Friedman. I, I'm curious, uh, during the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, I assume you were in the States. I, I'm just curious, was there real nervousness that Israel was going to be totally wiped out, or what was that? Not only was there nervousness, but good reason for it. Um, in the eve of the Six-Day War, I remember it well, because we had relatives in Israel and the fear of my parents. And um, we watched on television. They were digging graves, knowing what would happen? Um, you know, the closest thing to a miracle that as a child I ever saw was when we moved from the mood, the dark mood of uh, late May 1967, and then on, on June 5th, 1967, um, began hearing of the Six-Day War and the liberation of Jerusalem, and so on. Uh, no young person today can appreciate what it felt like 
um, to uh, just 20 years after the end of World War II to think that the Jewish state would be wiped out and the surrounding Arab states promised to do just that, to drive Israel into the sea. And I remember watching the uh, UN and it was uh, debates and it was stated quite openly. And of course, we now know that in the Yom Kippur War, it almost happened. Uh, it was a surprise attack against Israel. Uh, Golda Meir, who never recovered really from that, thought that the Jewish state might be finished. Moshe Dayan worried. Uh, had it not been for the genius of a man who well, done many bad things uh, before and after, but at that moment, he was amazing, and that's Ariel Sharon. Had it not been for Ariel Sharon, uh, I don't know what would have happened. But again, um, uh, I remember vividly as a teenager, the Yom Kippur War, and the sense of depression uh, for weeks as we heard of Jews killed and friends of ours killed, wounded and and and, and worried uh, what what would happen in the end. So um, uh, I I think those who only know of a powerful Israel, first world country, atomic weapons, uh, pummeling its neighbors have no conception of what it was like in 1967 and 73. And of course, the sense among Israelis was, this can never happen to us again. And therefore they invested astonishing amounts, paid some of the highest taxes in the world um, uh, and uh, built up uh, the military. Uh, to what it is today. What do you think explains, I don't want to just say Jewish intelligence because that I don't want to stereotype, but obviously there's been a ton of Jewish um, intellectual achievement. And also in the dramatic arts, comedy. Lots of people have different theories about why this is. Do you have one? Look, a small diaspora people that wants to survive develops certain skills, preferably skills that they can carry with them. And Jews have long known uh, education uh, they can't take away. Uh, you own a lot of land, uh, uh, the state can seize it. Uh, but uh, special skills, special knowledge, that helps to preserve you. Um, and whether we're talking about the Jews or the Jains in India, it's the same thing. Certain kinds of skills, values, um, lessons help small minority groups uh, to survive. They are diaspora survival strategies. And one of those survival strategies for Jews certainly was <laughs> study hard, um, uh, 
develop skills, um, uh, those are portable. And uh, education can save you. And, uh, you know, there are plenty of stories about that. And um, I think that those values are passed on one generation to the next, sometimes even if people don't realize uh, that they were originally diaspora survival strategies, they just say, oh, well, that's when my parents raised me and I now raise my children uh, the same way. But a historian looking at the long view, I think, comes to understand uh, that, that, you know, these were survival strategies.